We want to give a little bit of a background as to maybe the whys, the hows, the whats of inductive Bible study. That may ring a bell for you, and you may have a definition in mind and a system in mind. That may be completely foreign to you, what we're talking about. And so we want to give a little bit of a background and also kind of sell why we want to do this. So let me begin by talking first about the whys of inductive Bible study. And then I'm going to ask Jeff Smith in a few moments. He's going to come up and kind of give a little bit of background of some hows to do it. And we'll be doing this over the next uh, few weeks in addition to diving into the text together as well. So, the whys of inductive Bible study. Maybe let me start with this. What is inductive Bible study? And Jeff's going to get a few more, a little more flesh on these bones, but let me just start there. An easy way of defining it is drawing conclusions from looking at the text itself or the specific section of scripture. You begin specifically looking at the context and who it was written to and why it was written to them and what was written and who's the one that actually wrote it. You take all of those things and then you come to a conclusion based on that study. You don't come to the text seeking to answer a specific question But you study the text and then allow it to form your conclusions because the word of God is authoritative. And so we're seeking to answer this question. What did the Holy Spirit intend to communicate in this specific section of scripture? Now, why should we be doing this? Let me just give you a few reasons and you can see them on your handout as well. So let me just give you three. There's more I'm sure that you can think of, but let's give three whys. Let me begin by saying that deductive Bible study, in contrast to inductive Bible study, also has its merits. So we don't want to pit deductive Bible study and inductive Bible study against each other. What's deductive Bible study? Well, it's good for us to even use deductive methods because that is kind of how we systematize our doctrines based on what the scriptures teach. So as as an example, we want to come to a conclusion about what the whole of scripture teaches about Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Christology, who is Jesus. And so what you would do is go through all the various passages of scripture that talk about Jesus, talk about his work, and we come to conclusions based on the whole of Scripture about his deity, his role in the Trinity, his creative power, his sustaining power over all creation, his redemptive work, and so on. And so we're taking a holistic look at Scripture to try to systematize a particular doctrine. But the danger is that if all we do is deductive Bible study, we would come to the word every time with some kind of agenda. And I don't mean that necessarily in a negative sense, where you're coming, okay, I I have something in mind that I want the text to prove. Seeking to answer a question or to build a theology outline. And again, that's not all bad, but we need to recognize that the word of God is more than a textbook out of which we have a theology outline that we pull out of it. It's a piece of literature. Now, it's more than that. It's the very word of God, but it is not less than a piece of literature, and we want to make sure that we treat it as such. And then the other danger of that is that sometimes our agendas, and again, that could be positive, it could be negative. There we go. So there's your first blank. Sometimes... When we come to the scriptures with an agenda or something that we want to prove, 
we find a text that seems to prove what we're looking for, but when we neglect to look at the surrounding context, we come to a false conclusion. Let me give you maybe a couple examples. Without reading this particular famous verse in context, Philippians 4.13. If you don't know what that text is, when I start quoting it, you probably will like, oh, okay, so that's where it's found. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And without the surrounding context, that seems like that is going to be a perfect verse for anything that I want to do. Any dream that I have, I can do it. I'm going, I, can, I mean, I can fly because I can do all things through Christ. I know that's a little bit of a stretch, but sometimes we pull that text right out of context and say, okay, I can do everything because Christ strengthens me. When the real context is Paul saying that I know how to live in want and I know how to live in abundance. I know how to honor and glorify God when I have everything that I need and more or when I've, I'm famished and when I have no clothes on my back and when I've been beaten and near death. I can still glorify God and be thankful because Christ strengthens me to do that. How about hearing a preacher use like a Greek word like dunamos? Maybe you've heard that before, and that's the Greek word that we get our word dynamite. So every time you see dunamis, it's this dynamite, explosive-like power, but then you say, wait, the original context, the Greeks had no idea what dynamite was. And so that has a different context and a different definition than us thinking a stick of dynamite and all the explosive power that we usually associate with dynamite is it's destructive. And there's a different idea of that word dunamis in the New Testament. Maybe Proverbs 22, verse 28. Remove not the ancient landmark. Maybe you've heard that as a warning. Don't change a long-standing tradition. Because we're not supposed to remove any ancient landmarks. I've even heard it used as a proof text to not use any other translation of the Bible, but what somebody enjoys, usually like the King James Version of the Bible. But the context, both historically and in the surrounding verses, clues us in that that word landmark is an ancient Hebrew way of marking out someone's territory. So the proverb there is not talking about not moving traditions and not using something different than what you're used to, but it says don't lie about your property boundaries. Don't move someone else's property boundaries so that you now have more land. In other words, don't steal anybody's land and be honest about the land that you have. So inductive methods of Bible study allow us to go to the text and ask the question, what does the Holy Spirit intend to tell us? And this type of Bible study should help us avoid some of those types of fallacies. And lastly, I do want us to realize that inductive Bible study is not just an end in and of itself. Without trying to sound condescending, Jeff and I, as we kind of talked about this, are praying that this method will act kind of like training wheels do with a child who's trying to read or trying to learn how to ride a bike. And again, please don't get offended at this. This is what I mean by this. Think about what the, the purpose of training wheels on a children's bike is. For those new to the act of riding a bike, it acts kind of in two ways. It acts as a safety measure. It keeps the child from toppling and falling over. 
But it's also a way to teach new riders about balance and to ride their bike correctly. A good set of training wheels, just put some on with Bernie's help, on my daughter's bike. Both training wheels should not be touching the ground at the same time. They kind of go back and forth and they teach the rider to balance to where now they the, really the goal is to keep the training wheels off of the ground and just be balancing on the two main wheels of the bike. So how do we apply that to Bible study? Maybe there's some in here that have never had a systematic approach to studying your Bible. You grab a daily bread or you, you kind of flip your Bible open and, and read a few verses and, and hope you get kind of a morsel for the day. We're help, hoping that this scientific method of study will keep you from falling over and falling into ruts and maybe just putting the Bible aside because I just feel like I'm not getting anything out of it, but gives you a systematic approach to learning to study the Bible. For others, this may actually be, like the training wheels, a corrective measure to be sure that we allow the word to speak to us the way the Holy Spirit intended it, rather than us coming to the text to try to make it say something that we want it to say, but with the surrounding context, it really isn't saying that. And still for others, this may just be a good reminder. Say, I've done this for a while, or I have another um, way of studying the Bible that really helps me. <laughs> We're hoping that this gives you some very concrete ways for maybe you to come along somebody, a newer believer, or somebody that you're discipling, and you say, we need to get in the Word. How can we do that? Where do I start? And maybe this is, can be a way you can disciple someone else in the Word and give them concrete ways to study right alongside of you. And then one more reminder, why would we do this together as a body? Why is this so important? Maybe some of you might be saying, well, isn't this kind of study of the word a pastor thing? Isn't this what the pastors are paid to do? Well, the New Testament church has been commanded to give attention, and it's, these are to the church, attention to the reading and the understanding of the word, Acts 2.42. We see Timothy being admonished by Paul to do this in 1 Timothy 4.13. So yes, pastors and teachers are given to the body to provide solid teaching because that is what they have been set aside and devoted themselves to do. We see that in Acts 6. Remember the first deacons, they, the, the apostles, the teachers, the pastors, the elders are being pulled to try to meet all of these particular material needs of these Grecian widows. And they said, we need to find other men to be able to, who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, to take care of these matters so we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the word. But on the other side, pastors and teachers are given to the body of Christ as good gifts so that they can equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. In other words, church membership is not a spectator sport. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why did he give them? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all, all, attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. And again, that's we is not pastors, that's the church body from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are, as pastors and teachers are to train the members of the body to do the work. We don't do all the work for you. We're supposed to give you the tools and the training to do the work, and that is God's design that we see in the scriptures. So this study will seek to establish some of the nuts and the bolts of Bible study. It'll provide some of the science of it, but let's be careful. We never want to just get in a rut to where all we're doing is intaking information and growing in our knowledge of theology that's all important and having it be cold and dry and dead because we need to remember that Satan's theology and his knowledge of the scripture is probably innumerably better than us. So it's not just about knowing the word. It's allowing the word through the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to change us and to grow us into greater Christ-likeness. It's more than a science, your Bible study. It needs to be almost like a combination of art and science under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. Like learning any other discipline, you start with the basics and allow those to be ingrained into your muscle memory so that they become second nature. That any skilled musician or craftsman or doctor or lawyer or athlete, teacher, a parent, at some point learns to kick off the training wheels of what they're doing and really enjoy the bike for the tool that it is. It's a gift to get places faster and to enjoy places of nature, to spend time with friends and family, but they can't do that without allowing those training wheels to teach them the basics. So. We're praying that the study over the next little while will be seen not as an end to itself, to say, all right, I got this thing down, I got the method, I'm just going to put a grid over the Bible every time I read it and do this and close it, and it becomes cold and dry to you. We'll pray that this will be a tool that allow you to see Jesus through the pages of Scripture, to enjoy the big story of God's redemption, no matter what book you're in in your personal study, and ultimately to grow to love God and others through the transformative power of God's word. Remember, Jesus prayed for us. Sanctify them, his children, his, 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 his family, with thy truth. And what is the truth? The word is true, so it's the main tool for our sanctification. So there will be times when it's good to open the Bible and kind of like press play on the movie and let it go from start to finish and you just enjoy the whole picture. But sometimes if you get the background behind a film and stop it at different scenes and kind of analyze what happens, sometimes the movie actually becomes even more alive to you. And so we're hoping that both of those things will happen. So let's learn to do both well in the context of the Holy Spirit intended when he inspired the word. So that's the whys. I'm going to turn it over to, to Jeff and talk a little bit about the hows, and hopefully I'll have a few minutes to dive into it this evening as well. Thanks, Pastor Kyle. I am not up here because I'm an expert on inductive Bible study. <laughs> um, here's how I got here. This summer, um, I was asked to teach a Sunday school class on how to study the Bible. And the third lesson of the series uh, we dove into how to do inductive Bible study. We spent two weeks on it, and the class did some of it together. And 
it was really helpful to me. Uh, I hope it was for the class as well. I find that when I teach something, I learn more than my students do, and perhaps I needed it more than my students did, uh, and that's why the Lord had me teach it. So as uh, we were going through that, I learned some ways of reading the Bible that were so helpful to me. There were just some, a few simple things that caused my Bible reading to be um, more interesting. Um, I saw more in the text. I sensed the Lord's presence with me to a greater degree as I was reading through his word, and it directed me to more truth about his character, about my own sin, um, all sorts of things. So many benefits as I started to do this, and I continue to learn how to do inductive Bible study. I'd heard about it a little bit in college and been challenged to do some of that. I heard a little bit about inductive Bible study at Jerry Zoller's Sunday School Table. I remember one week Jerry had us uh, reading a text together and doing that inductively because years ago he'd done that with a Christian group in college and that was their whole approach to Bible study together. So some of you maybe have had some experience with inductive Bible study in the past and we just want to present that to you and maybe uh, give you some help doing that and just praying that it'll revitalize your study of God's word. And we live in a society where we see a verse hung on a wall. Uh, we see it on our Facebook pages posted. Uh, we have a lot of verses that are digested by somebody else for us and given to us in devotions. Um, but to be able to really read the word of God and for it to be the food that the Lord intended it to be for us, we really need to spend some quality time. And we need to remember that the Bible is in so many ways a love letter from God to us. And if you have had a love letter sometime in your life, uh, you, you probably can remember how you read those love letters, right? <laughs> if it ever came in the mailbox, long-awaited love letter, you were eager to open it up, you cherished that thing, and you would just pour over the words, the nuances, things that may have been underlined in that, right? And it just became so dear to you. Well, this is God's love letter to us, and we ought to read it with that same sort of attitude. So hopefully tonight we can give you some practical things. We're just going to focus tonight on observation, which is the first step of inductive Bible study, and then we'll hopefully be able to have that model for us. Um, Pastor Kyle come back up, and we'll do that for Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So in inductive Bible study, Pastor Kyle gave a good background on what, one, what inductive reasoning is, really, and where inductive Bible studies come from. Um, this is something that we see in the world of philosophy and also in science, reaching conclusions by making many careful, specific observations and then building those observations up into patterns, tentative hypothesis, and then a generalized conclusion. And uh, so it is a helpful method even applied to the Bible. It's helpful in applying this to all truth, but particularly with the Bible. Okay, so one thing that you will, you know you'll get, you're going to get in any discussion of inductive Bible study are the three phases, the three steps. They are observation, what does the text say? Interpretation, what does it mean? And application, what does it mean to me or for me? 
You know, a lot of times we start with, what does it mean to me? <laughs> we can get into trouble in our Bible study. Uh, and I think it's really important that those steps are done in order. That we start with observation. We come humbly to the text. And we come um, as students of God's word. There are a lot of specifics on your handout tonight. But the most helpful thing is just to realize the importance of slowing down and being a student of the Word of God and just approaching it humbly and prayerfully and how important that is. You don't need to learn a fancy marking system. <laughs> you don't need to learn all of these steps to, in order to do this. But if you can remember and realize the importance of feeding yourself well on the Word of God by slowing down, by taking it very humbly, coming with a, on the mind of an observer, uh, you will be well served in your Bible study. So these steps are progressive, uh, meaning that they need to be done in order. We start by building up a lot of observations, and then from those observations, interpreting. And interpreting is largely, what did it mean to the original audience? What did, what did this passage mean in context, right? And then moving over to application after that which is also important. We don't want to stop with just observation. We have to go all the way through in order for, um, to get the full value of reading scripture. So we're gonna look at the house of observation and that's the first step, as you know, the goal is to interrogate the text, to interrogate the text. Um, science is sometimes viewed as an enemy of faith and we can be reluctant sometimes to apply anything scientific to our Bible study, uh, and this is sort of a scientific method. But good science is a, a great foundation to apply to our study of scriptures. Um, we want to approach it the same way that somebody out in the field observing a species of animals uh, would observe so carefully, noting all the details, writing them down, pondering them. Why does this happen, right? What could be an explanation? Having that hunger, that, that desire to seek for truth, um, as we're reminded in the Bible. We are to seek for wisdom, to cry out for it, that uh, we are to seek first even the kingdom of God, right? And we do that through his word. So to have the mind of an interrogator, maybe a detective would be another way to look at it. Has to look at every piece of evidence and really see what do we conclude from this evidence. So the goal is to interrogate the text, and uh, first thing we want to learn is the five W's for that. I'll put them all up here. So who is speaking to whom is an important question to ask as we begin. We want to learn who, who is writing, who God used as the human instrument of the inspired word of God. And who is he writing to? That really changes the purpose and helps us understand the purpose of the text and gives us context. What are they saying? When are they saying it? Uh, what, what was going on? Paul writing from prison? Uh, was this his first time being arrested or his second arrest? And is this on his mission, one of, which one of his missionary journeys, right? What was going on? Was this church going through persecution? A lot of times we get this in messages, right? The context, when are they saying it? Why do they say they are saying it? I'm writing this to you because we sometimes have that very clearly stated in scripture. And then uh, what is the context? What is the context? Context is so important uh, for good Bible study and good application. Uh, we want to answer these questions by marking our text, by writing notes and recording 
observations that we have about the text as we go through by asking questions of the text and looking for the answers within God's word, uh, by making lists, and by noting what's before this passage and what's after it. Um, why is it placed here, right? As Kyle said, the Bible is literature. It's written as literature, certainly more than literature, but it is written with, with a context, with a story before and after. And, and it's part of a bigger story, right? So we want to look at the um, cultural context, historical context, and the personal context, perhaps, of the, what's going on in the situation. Um, okay, I need to throw in a Yogi Berra quote, just because. <laughs> Apparently, Yogi Berra said, you can see a lot just by looking. Right? You can see a lot just by looking. That's really what observation is. Uh, it is looking and looking and looking, gazing at the text, right? It's noticing observations. Martin Luther said his study of the Bible was like the way he got fruit from his apple tree. He said, I'd shake that apple tree, I'd shake the whole tree, and then I'd get the ripest fruit. And then I'd shake each branch. And then I'd go each branch to each twig. And then I'd go to every leaf and turn it over because I wanted everything from that tree. That's how Martin Luther described his, his Bible study. I think that's a great um, observation for us. Uh, of course, when we do this, we want to pray before we begin uh, a Bible study like this because this is the Word of God. This is authored through the Holy Spirit as he moved men of God to write the Scriptures for us. And we need the Spirit's help to understand the Scriptures properly. So it always starts with prayer, and you come to the Scripture with the five W's, asking these questions, trying to observe things. Um, I will, let's see, I think I skipped something. <laughs> no. All right. Anyway, on the back of your handout, you'll see a marking approach. Now, that may look like a three-year-old got a hold of some markers and then got into your Bible. Uh, I hope that's not the case. What this is, it's, this, there's not just one way to mark your Bible um, when you're doing this, but it, it is helpful to mark because it's active reading, right? It's how you help yourself to make connections that are there, right? to find the connections to, to really observe. And you want to be careful. You don't want to get so caught up in how do you mark something and what did the sheet say and how, you know, that you, you lose the, the purpose of really gazing into the scriptures, into God's word. But we'll see some helpful things here as we go through. I'm just going to move past this and maybe come back to it. So the key is that good observation is what makes for good Bible study. And good observation, we want to mark the text systematically. It would be, it's helpful when we do this to print out a copy of the scriptures in case you don't want to mark up your Bible uh, this way, to actually just find it online, print it out. Um, you know, I was challenged as I thought about this because I so often just use this thing uh, for my Bible. And there are lots of challenges with that, right? It's a small interface. You can't mark it up. You can't own it as well, right? I know it's handy at times. It's very portable and light. Um, but you don't get the study notes and the, the, the cross-references. A lot of things that can really be a healthy Bible habit, Bible reading habit. So we've got to be careful about these things too, right? But making a copy, marking up your copy, very helpful to do. 
Um, we'll talk a little bit about systematically doing that. Okay, one thing to do would be to, sorry, write down observations uh, as you go through about time and about place. We want to note patterns as we read. Patterns are repeated things. Um, so one uh, common, one thing I read here which was helpful was photo, F-O-T-O. -O. Focus on the obvious as you read the scriptures, right? Focus on the obvious. You don't want to get so into observing before you actually understand the big idea of the passage, right? You really want to understand the big picture first. Kind of like working on a puzzle. Uh, there are some pieces that are easier to place and find, and sometimes we use the, po the box for the puzzle, so we know how to place those. So use the, work with the obvious pieces first, right, as we do observation. We want to look for patterns, repeated things, because those are things that are going to help us understand the message of the passage, the pattern of the, of the passage, uh, the real I, uh, purpose of it, right? Contrasts, let me just have you turn um, to the back of your paper and you'll see just one way of noting a contrast and how that can add to your understanding of a passage. In verse five, this is from 1 Peter five. You can see in verse five towards the end, for God opposed the proud, but give, gives grace to the humble. And you see how there's that divide there between proud and but gives grace to the humble, marking that important contrast, okay? You can see some other notations on here, um, things that we could mark, right, specifically. Here's a comparison in verse eight. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's that comparison of the devil to a roaring lion. And we ought to have a respect for the enemy from that comparison, understanding the fullness of it. He's a roaring lion. It speaks to his pride, right? And that is always his character trait. And he is one who intimidates and accuses through his roaring, doesn't he? It's very picturesque. It's important to catch those comparisons in Scripture and also to realize that he's seeking someone to devour. It's an important part of that whole picture, a word picture that's in Scripture. Sometimes we can read right through those things and, and miss them, and this helps us to slow down and, and to note them. You might mark lists, as you see um, the model has done here in verse 2. This is instructing pastors, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, one, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, two, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. So there's a whole list of teaching, of helpful instruction to pastors given there, right? And we go right through verse 3, and we can see that list there. It's just helpful to organize the scripture that way. You'll note on this paper as well, they've underlined in green any geographic locations referred to. Expressions of time are circled in green after you have suffered for a little while. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. There's some of that theme in this passage Right? That there is suffering for now, but there is this eternal weight of glory that's awaiting you, right? As encouragement. And you see it throughout this passage. Even in the introduction, uh, verse 1. 
Peter says that he exhorts the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and as a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter, looking forward to the suffering for now, but there is coming this great glory. It's going to be revealed, right? And so you see that running through this passage, repeated in this passage. So this is just one way of marking the text. And uh, you can come up with your own. I would keep it simple. <laughs> but the idea is to, to be involved, to be an observer. We've lost in our culture today with the speed at which we do things, the ability to observe, haven't we? Uh, when we're wondering something, what's the first thing we do? I do it at the dinner table all the time. My wife and daughters will tell you, and they'll roll their eyes. I say, okay, Google. <laughs> uh, how far is the migration of a you know, monarch butterfly? You know, Whatever. We come up with these questions at the table, and we just think Google has it for us, right? We, we've lost the art of really observing things. Think about David. He's a shepherd out in the fields observing the night sky, making conclusions about his God from that, right? He had all this time to do that, um, and he had the scriptures to meditate on, right? We, we've, we've lost some of that, the speed of our society. We're, we're content to let other people do our digesting for us. And so um, we, we miss out on the nutrients, right, in that, that metaphor. So you want to know patterns, contrasts, parallels, lists, does this still work? The, uh, Pastor Brad thing? Okay. <laughs> Note linking words in material. Uh, we've all heard that. When a therefore is there, we want to see what it's there for, right? Um, that's so important. Well, a good technique is to summarize what come, came before the therefore that caused that to be written, right? Um, we have one in the passage on our back, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, why, why is that there? What's that concluding? Because he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself, right? It's a, it's a great reminder. Connecting the verses, connecting the thoughts. That's an Old Testament quote from Proverbs 3, 34. Um, and that's also important to note. What other scriptures are being alluded to? What's a deliberate connection to another passage of scripture? and study those passages as well, right? Um, a good thing, too, is to write down connections or questions that you have. We have a place to do that on our Bible study guide tonight where it says notes. So as we're looking at Mark chapter 1, I was thinking, that as I was reading that this morning again, um, why does John the Baptist wear camel's hair and a leather belt and in a gospel that's so condensed, why are we told that? It seems like, you know, we're just, it's mentioned and then we leave that topic. Why was that important, right? It's good to ask the text question and carry the question around with you. Talk to people and find out and read in God's words, study the path, the trail, come to those conclusions. And then uh, memorization will only help. You know that this is true. As you memorize a passage, you get to work on it until so you own it. And as you're doing that, you're meditating on the scriptures. And that really helps you to um, think and think and think in different contexts as you're going through different life experiences. 
what does this mean? How do I apply this to this situation that I'm in now, right? And God will unfold uh, greater truth from that passage to us than we would have otherwise gained. So those are some lists of things to do as we observe. Again, even if we do some of those things, all right, you'll find your Bible reading will be revitalized. The Lord will use that because we're coming humbly with the heart of a questioner. So I think we're going to practice, and you guys might want to stand up and stretch a bit. I know this has gone on long, so why don't you go ahead and stand up. And if you need another uh, a prayer journal, they're still back there. You might want to take a walk over there, grab that. <laughs> So you can certainly use the handout for what uh, we just went through, but that's also why we're giving you these books as well, and maybe you can carry them around with you um, and bring in them at least Wednesday night and do that. So if you want to grab one of those, please do, and uh, let's dive in just for sake of time. I hope, I'm hoping to get through the next eight verses here, so let's hope that we can do that. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And I love Jeff's illustration about a, uh, a three-year-old getting a marker, um, because this looks like the torso of my three-year-old son this afternoon. <laughs> Got home and he found his sister's markers and he tattooed himself all up. So thankfully they're washable, we're good. Um, but yeah, kind of, that's kind of what it looked like uh, today. So great illustration. Let's jump into Mark. Let's look at the first eight verses. And again, the goal, um, would be for us to ask some of those questions, and I'm going to help us get those answers tonight. But as we move forward, hopefully it becomes a little more interactive, whether around your table or even from someone who's kind of done the homework, but kind of asking the questions and you seeing things for yourself. So let's, let me read it, brief word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, it's John, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. And here's a contrasting statement. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Father, please open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. So let's begin with this question as we interrogate the text. Who is speaking? Who is he speaking to? And when is he speaking it? So I'm kind of getting who and when right off the bat. Well, who is speaking is Mark or John Mark. He's the author. Now, who is John Mark? John Mark was not a disciple of Jesus, part of his inner circle. He was from a well-known, wealthy Christian family. How do we know that? Well, again, you kind of connect things to other passages. It was John Mark's family's house where the church gathered to pray 
for Peter's release from prison in Acts chapter 12. Remember Peter's miraculous release with the angels and them escorting him out. And then he goes and he goes to a house where the church was gathered to pray. That was John Mark's family's house. Now, John Mark was also the cousin of Barnabas. You may recognize that name. John Mark was the one that caused the rift between Barnabas and Paul in Acts chapter 15. Barnabas wanted to take him with them on the missionary journey. Paul said no, and they ended up splitting ways. Barnabas and Mark went one way, and Paul went the other. Now, when was this written? Most likely, historically, we're going to place this book around AD 60 is when it was written. It was most likely written in Rome to Gentile Christians in Rome. But we also see throughout, he probably understood that a Jewish audience was going to read this as well. Now, how do we, how do we place this historically? Well, 1 Peter 5.13, it's actually on the back of your handout. You'll notice there that Mark is referenced by Peter of being in Babylon. And most likely, historically and contextually, that's talking about the city of Rome. And because of Mark's relationship with Peter, it was a close relationship, and, a, and an ancient historian, again, what he says is not inspired, but it's historical, he gives credence to the idea that Peter actually told Mark about his time with Jesus. Again, remember, Peter was the inner circle and Mark wasn't. So he told him, so it's, it's widely assumed that Mark's um, narrative here in his gospel is actually Peter retelling his stories to Mark. And you can do a little more, just a good Bible, uh, study Bible or commentary will really allow you, especially at the beginning of the study of a book, to help you understand some of that context. So that helps us with who's speaking, who's he speaking to, and when was he saying this. Let's move on to another question. What is Mark saying? And how does he say it? What's the style of Mark's narrative here? Well, Mark here is giving in his gospel clarity to us and to his audience to who Jesus is. He's giving clarity as to why the gospel of Jesus Christ is different than any other gospel. And then also in this particular passage, he lets us know what the message of John the Baptist was as he is used of God to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. And Mark's style contrasts quite a bit with the other three Gospels. Mark is very action-packed. You're going to notice that in your ESV, the word immediately is found a lot of times. And immediately they did this. And immediately they did this. There are, in Mark's Gospel, fewer events of Jesus' life than in other Gospels. So he focuses on fewer events of Jesus' life. But Mark gives more focus and information on most of those events than the other Gospels. So fewer events, but more information about those events. And Mark also, as you read through it, is gonna, you're going to find out that he focuses less on Jesus' teachings than the other Gospels. He includes only seven parables of Jesus, where um, comparatively speaking, some of the other Gospels have 20 or 27 of Jesus' parables. Mark only includes seven. So that will hopefully help us with kind of the what is he saying, and then how does he say it. 
And then one of the biggest questions we're going to seek to answer here in the next few minutes is, why does Mark say what he's saying, both overall in the whole book, but in particular verses 1 to 8? And what's the context of what he is saying? So let's focus in on why Mark is saying what he's saying. We see it right there in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Purpose statement. Big underline. There's some big words in there that are really important. Beginning, the word gospel. Let me talk about gospel for a few moments here. And then Jesus Christ being identified as the Son of God. Here we see the purpose statement so that we know how the good news, the good tidings of Jesus Christ began. Let's focus in on a word that we pass over a lot. It's just ingrained in our Christian vocabulary, and that's the word gospel. Okay, if I said, what's the gospel? Well, it's the good news. It's the death, the perfect life, and the death, and the burial, and the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that's the Christian definition of the word gospel. But Mark didn't make that word up. Nor did any of the New Testament writers when they used the word gospel. It was actually a common term of the day. It was used to encourage people to have hope or to believe a promise because a significant event had happened. For instance, the birth of an emperor, the next emperor, or the crowning of an emperor would be considered the gospel of this emperor. This is a significant event. We should have hope. There's, pro there's things that they promise. We see that even every election cycle, right? You can say the gospel of this president. They have made so many promises on the campaign trail, and now they've been elected, and it's, it's all going to happen. Those, at least of their party, have hope and joy that this is actually going to get done this time. And so that's a similar idea of the gospel, the word gospel being used in the general culture of Mark's day. But here, Mark uses the same exact word to talk about the coming of Jesus. He will continually flesh out through this book why Jesus really is the only one who has a true gospel. That because of his coming and his work, his death and resurrection and ascension, you can have lasting joy and lasting hope that the gospels of every emperor before you failed. Why is Jesus coming the best message that will ever be proclaimed? So a modern day, uh, uh, not a modern day, but an, a reader in Mark's day is going to hear the word gospel and say, okay, is this just like every other emperor and every other significant event? There's promised hope and they always fall short. And we're going to see that the answer is a resounding no. So the message in the person, Jesus being the son of God, differentiates this gospel from all others. So Mark is very interested in having a contrast between the gospel of Jesus and the other gospels in the culture. And then when we move on to verses 2 and 3, we exercise the principle. We're connecting passages. And one of the, the greatest principles of interpretation when it comes to the Old Testament is that the New Testament is the greatest interpreter, the clearest interpreter of the Old. Mark's gospel paints much of the life and time of Jesus Christ against the backdrop of Israel's history. He's very interested in making connections between Jesus and Israel's history. We see that in the Exodus. We're going to talk about that in John's baptism. 
They're, they're longing for the promised Messiah. He connects and quotes the books of Daniel, Malachi, Psalms, Jeremiah, Zechariah, of course, Isaiah as well. So keep an eye out for those today and then as we move forward. So Mark, in verses 2 and 3, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes passages from both Isaiah 40, that's Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1. So in your, in, if, you're, if you're marking this, okay, you gotta see, don't take mine, I have my own system, and don't try to borrow somebody else, make something that works for you. I would write either in the margin or in the lines to the right a connection, Isaiah 40, verse 3, Malachi 3, verse 1. Some con- commentators would even connect this to Exodus 20, 23, verse 20. But if he's quoting from all of them and puts it all in a kind of a new form, But verse 2 begins, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So you might want to be scratching your head and say, okay, so so what's Mark doing here? He's quoting from at least two, if not three passages. Only mentions Isaiah. Is he being lazy? Is he trying to be deceptive here? Why does he only say Isaiah? But again, a little study in context. It was very common practice in his day when multiple sources were cited to only cite the most common or the most prominent or the most well-known source. Isaiah being a major prophet in contrast to Exodus being part of the Pentateuch and then um, Malachi being a minor prophet. Isaiah being the major prophet is probably the most important, I'll use that term, important um, source for this quote. And so he's just going to reference Isaiah. So verses 2 and 3, why now? Why is he quoting these passages? Well, it sets the backdrop for two main characters in this passage, John, the Baptist, and Jesus. Mark uses the prophetic voices of Malachi, Isaiah, maybe even Moses, to root John, to root Jesus, and the gospel of Jesus in Old Testament prophecy. Again, what Roman emperor who's going to say the gospel of Nero is here is going to have Old Testament prophecy about him like Jesus did? None of them. So it's painting, again, the differentiation between Jesus' gospel and every other one. He wants his audience to know that Jesus was the Messiah, John was the prophesied messenger. And why are these passages significant? Isaiah 40, verse 3 reads this. This is the, the, in context. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So that begs the question, in Isaiah 40, what's the context? It was written to Israel regarding their captivity in Babylon and God's promised deliverance of his remnant through his intervening sovereign grace. So how does that connect with John the Baptist and Jesus? Well, the voice or the messenger that's quoted in Isaiah 40 is now connected in Mark chapter 1 to John the Baptist. And it's used, and and this person was to be used of God to basically clear a path for Jesus. In Isaiah, if you read the, the Isaiah context, when it says, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a desert highway for our God, Lord and God, that's Yahweh, that's Israel's God. So why is it significant that Mark connects Yahweh Israel's God to Jesus in verses 2 and verse 3. When it says, prepare the way of the Lord, now speaking of Jesus in verse 3 of Mark. 
This is significant. Because he's connecting the God's deliverance of Israel from Babylon to Jesus' gospel of deliverance for all people. It establishes, number one, the deity of Jesus. He directly connects Yahweh with Jesus. Very important, establishing the deity and that Jesus is the true fulfillment of God's prophecy, not only to his people, but now with this new gospel, it's a prophecy that's going to go across all of the nations. That Abraham's covenant, the covenant to Abraham, that though Abraham and his seed will be a blessing to all nations, is now coming to fruition. And the reference to Malachi 3 1, behold, I send my messenger, I'm going to give you homework. You can do that, okay? So let's keep going. You can try to see what the connections are there, get some good commentaries, and read that as well. Let's move to verse 4. Verse 4. So 2 and 3 root John and Jesus in Old Testament prophecy. Verse 4 makes it very clear that John the Baptist is here. He was the one who was prophesied of in the Old Testament. And we want to ask the question, what was his message? What's he saying? Well, it's a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins that is now being demonstrated by an outward sign of baptism, of immersion. Now, we could read right past that and say, oh yeah, baptism, we do that today. Remember, Jesus' earthly ministry hasn't started yet. The ordinance of baptism has not been established for the church. So what's the significance of John being out in the wilderness baptizing those who confess and repent of their sins? This is pretty radical at this point. Unlike continual ritual cleansing that God's people were commanded to practice under the old covenant and was something that they did to themselves, they washed themselves, this is a significantly different sign of repentance, of confession, and of the promise of forgiveness of sins. Full immersion, not just cleansing, from the act of somebody else, not self-cleaning, would again set John's message and his activity apart. Something new is coming. He's preparing the way. He's clearing obstacles for the gospel of Jesus. And as uh, Jeff already mentioned, we read about his dress and his diet in verse 6. And that signifies that he was set apart from the rest of Israel. Where was the rest of Israel? They were coming out to him. He's out in the wilderness and out in the desert. It's connected to 2 Kings 1.8. 2 Kings 1.8 describes Elijah as wearing hair and a belt of leather. And so there's a fulfillment in some sense of Elijah through John. Malachi 4.5 states, Elijah will come before the day of the Lord and turn the hearts of God's people. And now we have a fulfillment of almost a, in Mark's day, a modern day Elijah dressing like him, preparing, starting to turn the hearts of God's people back to himself. But John's message has another part to it, and here's where we'll end. It's not just repent, confess, and be baptized as an outward sign of inward repentance. But the message was to point to someone greater. Jesus Christ is so mighty. He is the Son of God. His gospel is so much different and better and greater than everyone else that even an important prophetic figure like John the Baptist recognizes he's not even worthy to do the menial task of a servant, to step down and unloose his sandal for his master. But even this, as great as it was, was merely a foreshadowing of Christ's greater work. John is Jesus' servant, 
his baptism, John's baptism, is with water. Another sign pointing to, it's, it's, it's a really neat connection to the exodus of God's people. Because what do we have here? We have a desert coming out to the desert. We have a passage through water. We have the promise of God's spirit being with his people as he was as they passed through the Red Sea. But even as great as that was, there's that but. Jesus' baptism is now is with the spirit. Jesus will be specially marked by the presence of the spirit with him. We'll see that in the coming verses. And that through his perfect life, atoning death, resurrection, and ascension, he's going to fulfill Isaiah 32, 15. He will have the power and the authority to dispense the Holy Spirit upon his people. Lastly, what does this all mean? We've we got to leave with some application and then we'll go. I'm just going to read these. It's important for us to understand the gospel of Jesus. That's what Mark is writing, and that's what we need to be studying. The gospel saves, it sanctifies, and it glorifies. Number two, God's word is reliable, and it carries on a main storyline, the coming of Jesus. We see that in the reference to Malachi and Isaiah. Three, repentance and confession of sin is required for the forgiveness of sin. It's required for this good news of the gospel of Jesus to be applied to you. We'll see many different responses to Jesus' gospel in the coming weeks. And we need to pay attention. What kind of response is that Jesus calls people to himself? And what kind of response is actually condemning response to the gospel? And lastly, we need to recognize God's sovereignty, that it took an act of God for all of these prophecies come true. Who sent the messenger, John the Baptist, before their face? God did. He broke through in a very special way. God's sovereign fingerprints are all over this passage. He sent his messenger, John the Baptist. He sent Jesus to do his will. And all of those who respond in confession and repentance are then welcomed into his family. So God broke through, as we see, in an incredible way to save a people for himself. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And may it be what it's supposed to be. May it be a lamp and a light. May it be sweeter than honey. May it, may it be sweeter than anything that we've ever tasted before. May it be our life and our breath this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.